Welcome to The Hive Podcast, a new 10-part series with me, Natalie Nahai, exploring technology's impact on our personal, cultural and political lives. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube and join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. If you enjoy the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes as it helps spread the word and makes it easier for other people to also find this content. And now for the show. Silky Carlo is the director of Big Brother Watch, a non-profit, non-party civil liberties and privacy campaigning organisation based in the UK. She was previously the senior advocacy officer at Liberty, where she led a programme on technology and human rights and launched a legal challenge to the Investigatory Powers Act. She previously worked for Edward Snowden's Official Defence Fund and Whistleblowers at Risk. Silky is a passionate campaigner for the protection of liberties, particularly in the context of new and emerging technologies, and she's worked to uphold rights in the field of state surveillance, policing technologies, big data, artificial intelligence, and free expression online. She's also an information security trainer and organises crypto parties in London. This episode, we'll be exploring everything from surveillance, privacy, and biometrics, to human rights, the government, and how politics is shaping the ways in which technology can influence our lives. So Silky, thank you very much for coming on the show with us today. Can you first of all tell us a little bit about Big Brother Watch, what you do, and why it's so important? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So Big Brother Watch is a privacy and civil liberties organisation that really campaigns on the forefront of uh, technology and human rights issues. And we've seen since Big Brother Watch was established in 2009 that one of the ways that the state can most easily grow its power um, in the current time is by an expansion of the state surveillance architecture. And that growth in power has been absolutely unprecedented over the last five years in particular, you know, since these kind of issues have come to light uh, in the post-Snowden age. So we campaign um, to roll back the surveillance state and we campaign for um, data rights and justice. We're looking at policing and technology um, and seeking to protect civil liberties wherever they um, come under risk. We do that in a a number of ways. Um, We are quite proactive in Parliament. Um, We have good parliamentary relationships. Uh, We do public campaigning and uh, public education and we litigate too. Um, So we have one uh, major legal challenge ongoing at the moment to uh, the the, uh, law under which the mass interception that Edward Snowden revealed uh, was practised. And so before we sort of dive into some of the stuff that you're focusing on, because there's a huge amount of work that you're doing to try and secure people's rights um, from being eroded, which have already been significantly eroded. Can you maybe give some insights as to why, it seems to me at least, we're one of the worst countries in the EU for spying on our citizens and how it's gotten this bad? How did we get into this situation? Mm. Gosh, that's a great question. And such a a difficult one to answer. I mean, it's an academic question, really. I mean, you could you could write a whole book about why does the UK have relatively such blasé attitudes towards privacy? I can't help thinking that um, 
it is because we don't have um, as readily as other countries like Germany that has really quite different attitudes towards privacy. Mm. We don't have as recent a history of um, such outrageously authoritarian government. Mm. And I do think that in the UK, we've become a little bit complacent um, and complacent not only to the kind of malintent that you can see um, the potential for in government, but also the banality of evil, mm. if you like. Mm. Um, the fact that it's so easy, especially with technological advancement, to um, erect this global mass surveillance uh, architecture apparently for the right reasons. Mm. We, we haven't been alive enough to the risks. Um, and the terrible, terrible risk with, with that kind of attitude towards privacy that the UK has is that when we do wake up to the risks, um, you know, it will be too late, which is why it's our job as Big Brother Watch to really be um, ringing the alarm now. Um, as we're seeing, you know, al already uh, we are we're nearing a, a point of no return, I would suggest. I wonder if, I mean, when we're thinking about it, people often talk about it in terms of Orwellian versus Huxleyan kind of dystopias, where on the one hand with Orwell, it's very clear that people are being tracked with the screens in people's homes, um, you know, recording pretty much everything they do. Um, whereas the other version that I think is probably more akin to what we have now is kind of surveillance through the guise of entertainment and utility. So, you know, the fact that we've welcomed all of these technologies into our homes, not really having a sense of what, as you say, the sort of the surveillance architecture could do in the hands of companies and governments um, that can then use these technologies to collect data at massive scale without consent in a covert way. Um, and in a way that people are just farming out their own data uh, willingly, mm. without even understanding what the potential ramifications might be. Um, and this kind of touches on one of the areas that I would like to in invite you to speak about, which is suspicionless surveillance. So issues connected with, for instance, the Snoopers Charter. Can you tell us a bit more about that and the work that you do in that area? Yeah, absolutely. And I just, you know, picking up on what you, you, you've said um, about, you know, the difference between um, state surveillance and then so the surveillance that we walk into mm. uh, in the practices that we use every day. Uh, I think the Orwell-Huxley comparison is absolutely perfect. I think I think Orwell said that the truth would be suppressed and Huxley warned that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, you know, potentially we, we are kind of drowning. It, we, we are absolutely imbued with uh, technological convenience mm. Um, that does ultimately, you know, exploit the individual. It particularly exploits our our privacy, and um, you know, we are this is we are real risk of a kind of black mirror society, <laughs> and that's part of what our so our work against uh, suspicionless surveillance is um, really driven by very basic principle that. Um, no one, no no actor, no power should be able to surveil the individual unless there is uh, suspicion of, of criminality, unless there is a real reason to do so. So we have a legal challenge um, against the regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, which mm. is the previous Snoopers Charter. Mm. Um, and we're challenging the mass interception uh, law 
Um, so there's a, a clause in that act which um, purportedly, I mean, I think we would disagree, but <laughs> under which the government claimed it had the, the ability to intercept undersea cables that um, allow them to monitor billions of communications. It's just extraordinary. Um, yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. And the, and the kind of, it kind of, the, the size of the data ingested mm. and monitored seems almost uh, unfathomable. Yeah. But some, when you look at some of the programs that were going on under that, so, you know, um, Optic Nerve, for example, was GCHQ's program whereby it passively intercepted uh, webcam calls and took screenshots. And this was in 2008 that people were being spied on through their webcams ironically, to train a facial recognition program. Wow. You know, it just gets worse and worse. Yeah. I also imagine they managed to get in a lot of pornography. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, an estimated about 10% of those images were explicit. Um, and it's just, you know, the, the extent of ex invasion into people's private lives is absolutely extraordinary. And then there's a kind of, you know, extremely Orwellian bulk monitoring programs uh, that, you know, like Karma Police, which was um, GCHQ's database of the browsing activities of all visible users on the internet. It's just incredible. So it, it really is. And, you know, you can't, there is no, there's very little room to be hyperbolic mm. about how uh, extensive the state surveillance, uh, suspicionless state surveillance uh, framework really is. So we're challenging that. The thing that frightens me quite a lot is the fact that there's just such a huge level of apathy. And I remember um, anyone related to tech and anyone connected with data analysis and marketing even back in the day, like maybe even four or five years ago, we all started hiding our webcams and making sure that if we didn't want to be recorded, our phones were off. But I mean, even that's not enough. So I had a friend that mm. had um, like a pocket-based Faraday cage that you could put your phone into that would literally block all signals. Um, mm. You know, and so, and I remember people saying to me, Nat, you're, you're paranoid. And I was thinking, no, I'm just aware of how easy it is for this stuff to get used in ways that we wouldn't intend for them to be used. And of mm. course, now everyone having seen the Facebook post of Zuckerberg being, actually it wasn't even a post, but uh, the images of him covering yes. his camera and uh, microphones and hearing a lot of people out of Silicon Valley saying, well, hang on, actually, there is the scope here for misuse, not just through data collection, but also um, social engineering. Um, yeah, it, it feels as though there's a sea change. Do you think people are becoming less apathetic through this awareness or do you think there's still an uphill battle to be had? That's, it's very difficult to gauge. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how things are changing. I mean, particularly because now we have um, an almost adult population that has always mm. had smart, internet-connected, um, soft surveillance technologies at their fingertips. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to gauge how easily we'll be able to get through to that generation um, because, you know, clearly they, they've grown up with norms that um, under, you know, any kind of rights respecting democracy um, are, are distinctly abnormal. Mm. But I do think that there is, there are a lot of people, there really are a lot of people um, that care about this and that see that there's a problem. I think what we struggle with is that people are, very disempowered and there's a real kind of um it's very very off-putting to adopt views that you know you can't act on yeah absolutely so 
yeah, I mean, it, why, why would someone care deeply about their privacy and openly express views against state surveillance when they know that actually they can't do anything about it? Mm. And I think that's why groups like, you know, if I can say, I think that's why groups like Big Brother Watch are really important because we do offer, um, you know, we will never stop. We'll never stop campaigning on these issues and, and support, um, you know, for us uh, that we have from the public has enabled us to take the government to court. And that's what we'll, you know, probably keep doing. I find it extraordinary that we have to take our own government to court. Um, mm. <laughs> and I know. The, it's just, it's, especially because, well, being British in terms of place of birth, I kind of, you want to believe that your own government is actually a force for positive, liberal progress in the world and um, this is incredibly retrograde. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is the use by British police of automated facial recognition to identify and track people without their knowledge or consent and it's this mm. kind of it connects to this idea of you know this almost this passe idea almost of innocent until proven guilty. Is this something that's now a thing of the past? Is this kind of surveillance even even legal? Yeah, um, no, <laughs> I think it's the short answer. So this is a new, I think the, the kind of new frontier for um, technologies, surveillance and rights is in the some of the policing technologies that we can see are now being um, quite quietly rolled out. Um, we've had uh, fingerprint scanners recently being rolled out, um, all sorts. But automated facial recognition technology is uh, perhaps the most insidious. So it's software that runs behind CCTV cameras that picks out faces from a crowd um, and seeks to um, alert police to the individuals that uh, the police have said they want to look for. This technology is, I mean, it's, this is essentially a, a biometric checkpoint. So yes. there, there are identity checkpoints that check who's in the public, who's walking around, uh, who's entering a space. And there absolutely is no, you know, this technology has never been considered by Parliament. I don't think uh, the public is really aware that this is something that police forces are starting to use. Um, so, you know, for us, it's te terribly worrying, not only from a rights perspective, that technologies can be used in this way um, in clear, I, I would suggest, quite a clear breach of, of uh, basic uh, rights and civil liberties, but also from a rule of law perspective, that the police have the ability, and in fact, Home Office backing, to deploy an extraordinarily intrusive technology um, without a legal basis to do so. How can they do it without a legal basis? What is it in terms of the structure of our legal system that enables them to operate seemingly outside of the law? It's it's a good question, and I just I just don't know. There seems to be, you know, particularly with technologies, mm. there seems to be a temptation for government to run before it can walk. And I think they think it's exciting, and it, and any technology seems innovative. Uh, and I really worry about what how that bodes for the future. Mm. Um, you know, at what rate will we see robots de deployed in in the workplace and artificial intelligence used for decision making? And you know, we we have to take a measured approach to the use of technologies. And here, clearly, with facial recognition there has been no consideration of the kind of risks that the technology could pose. I mean, take, for example, 
at um, Remembrance Sunday mm. in November 2017, the Metropolitan Police used automated facial recognition um, around the cenotaph where people were entering to pay their respects. And on this occasion, they were using the technology to identify people essentially with mental health issues. What? They're people that they call fixated individuals, so people that often you know, may send letters often to members of the royal family and so wow. on. Not people that were wanted for arrest, so you know, clearly not people that had been uh, harassing or, or stalking or anything like that. Mm. These people are known to have mental health issues, and the police were seeking to identify them using these biometric checkpoints, pull them out from the crowd and eject them from the event. They hadn't considered the impact that that would have on someone that may already suffer from uh, paranoia or, you know, anxiety. To suddenly know they're being watched, uh, you know, not only watched by by humans, but by being watched by very little known technology and then being ejected from from an event. So, yeah, we absolutely need to have a public debate about this. And I think, to be honest, the police just need to stop using it now. That's just extraordinary that they can get away with this. And also, the other thing that I find so profoundly disturbing about this is the way in which um, human society and all its fickleness and us all being components that make up human society, how quick... um, we are to forget about the ways in which we've demonized things which are now seen as acceptable. So things like if you have an orientation that is not straight, if you are someone of a different ethnicity than white, if you are female as opposed to male, like all of these things. And of course, Mm. eventually the minorities get smaller and smaller, one hopes. And hopefully eventually everyone gets treated with the equal respect that we all deserve. But that people can identify or be identified by governments based on any of these characteristics and then demonised off the basis of that almost with um, any kind of norm that's deemed to be appropriate at the time. So in this case, Mm. well, let's target people with quote-unquote mental health issues. Um, Mm. It just seems extraordinarily short-sighted and compassionateless, actually, to me. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, And, you know, of course in light of um, equality law and, and the right not, mm. to, not to be subject to discrimination. I think mm. there's a, you know, significant legal questions around this too. Um, but the, the way in which this has been practiced kind of thoughtlessly and, and with a, the veil of, you know, Remembrance Sunday it was for public safety. Uh, at Notting Hill Carnival, mm. it was for law and order. Mm. But again, you know, you see how... Um, conspicuous is it that in two years from 2016 to through 2017 um the metropolitan police used automated facial recognition only twice both times were at notting hill carnival (laughs) so the 2016 carnival and then 2017 carnival um and you know there is little question in, in my mind that there is a community in london that the metropolitan police uh do over police, yeah, that they do target. And and something about, um, you know, the idea that technologies are neutral and data Mm. is neutral, Mm. that they can just construct these new watch lists and put them on facial recognition and there could never be anything racist about it. Well, in fact, you know, I think even the, the, the choice to deploy at the event raises questions but also we've seen that the algorithms facial recognition algorithms themselves um have been known to carry racial biases and disproportionately misidentify black faces and female faces Mm -hmm. which means that 
it could be, you know, at Notting Hill Carnival, for instance, black people who are asked to prove their identity because they've been flagged by their system more often than white people. It's just absolutely unacceptable and, and really disappointing that when we put this to the police, they said they didn't see this as being an issue. It's crazy. And I think the thing that's, that's so upsetting about this is the, the lack of... Um, depth of consideration of the ways in which we currently are marginalising people in society. Because I think if we want a better society, we have to really look in the mirror and think, what are the things that we all do to contribute to a society that we don't want to live in, to, to biases of all kinds? Um, because as you say, mm. I think when we create these technologies, our biases go into the creation of these technologies. We can't help it because it's the way that we are. But what we can do is admit it and then seek to find ways to rectify that. And I think this mm. blind kind of denial of um, the ways in which we shape our world, you know, sort of in the name of quote unquote progress, is just, it's quite disheartening. Do you think it's mm. possible that we could end up in a future not too far from now where we're emulating some kind of social credit system, the kind of which is being rolled out in China, where they score citizens based on traits such as their trustworthiness. And if they uh, commit um, so-called unsocial acts, like even stepping out onto a pavement when the light is red, they get their face put up onto a, a billboard. I mean, this is one of the ideas of things that's been rolled out. Um, mm. Is it possible that we could just sleepwalk into that kind of future? Gosh, I really, really hope not, of course. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> um, to ask. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's odd because it's a, it, it's a legitimate question, I think. Um, but, you know, obviously, a, a, as usual, I think the way that the, the way that these things roll out in the UK is um, a bit softer, but it doesn't mm. mean that we're witness, we could witness a similar kind of effect. You know, what is the kind of... Um, deleterious effect of that kind of system it is a chilling of free speech mm. a chilling of free expression a chilling of free association and I, I worry that in many different ways the kind of direction that um, this government is taking the country does as similarly has that kind of effect um, I mean we certainly worry that the mass surveillance system makes people start to question what they're saying or you know now we're seeing um more policing of social media networks or should I post this should I like this um should I follow that person should should I like this post or whatever um we we underlying the the way that social media networks are constructed is a kind of de facto um credit system mm, <laughs> if, yeah. if you like and and the ability to grow and lose social capital um on these platforms. So I do worry about how that's kind of being, um, yeah, it's a, it's a system that risks being built before our eyes. I think more importantly than ever, I think, as you were suggesting, it's, we all have a responsibility to, to be conscious about this new, um, technological realm that we are building and that is being built around us. Um, and to, to cherish and re and reinscribe the values that we, we care about most. So in terms of things that we can do, um, well, which I want to move on to in a second, um, where are we at currently with uh, regards to the regulation of the Investigatory Powers Act? Like, what, In terms of the progress or lack of progress that's being made there, what's something that people need to be made aware about? 
So we had a hearing at the European Court of Human Rights um, just at the end of last year, which went really well. And I am confident that we will have um, a good result, but we'll have to see. Um, Fingers crossed. Yes, and toes. (laughs) Um, So we'll find out, uh, I expect, in the next two or three months or so. Um, And so, you know, Hopefully, uh, if people are interested in this topic, if they follow Big Brother Watch on Twitter or on, sign up to our newsletters, follow our work, we will be, of course, um, letting everyone know what happens with that legal challenge. And that will play into um, the new Snoopers Charter, the Investigatory Powers Act, because if we can show at, that, at the highest European court that the um, principle of mass interception is... A, a, an unacceptable interference with important democratic rights uh, to privacy, then that will be a significant dent in the new piece of legislation um, as well. So that's that's really exciting. I'm so heartened to hear that. The second thought that comes directly into mind as soon as I hear that good piece of news is what happens when, if, <laughs> I'm still holding out hope, yeah. but if and when uh, Brexit ends up going through, what, to to which course of law will the British government be able to be held to account? Yeah. Does it change anything? I think, well, different groups have brought challenges um, to the European Court of Justice, which obviously is closely linked in with the EU, and uh, to the European Court of Human Rights, um, which relates to our Human Rights Act and the European um, Convention on human rights. Mm-hmm. So the most important thing from our perspective is to make sure that we never allow our government to uh, roll back our Human Rights Act or to untether us from the European uh, Convention on Human Rights, because that is separate uh, to membership of the, the European Union and the, and the political union. Um, it's something that this government has made quite clear in the past that it that it wants to do, but we should be deeply suspicious of any attempts to do that because then we really, really, really would um, be, you know, rudderless, I think, in terms of upholding rights in the UK. Mm. So what's your... <laughs> What's your greatest concern for the future if the current situation goes unchecked? My greatest concern, I have, uh, I'm deeply concerned, to be honest with you, I'm deeply concerned about our future. Mm. Um, and I think on surveillance in particular, if we don't resist suspicionless surveillance uh, attempts by current governments, uh, whether that is in the form of mass surveillance by the security and intelligence agencies or whether it's um you know technologies like automated facial recognition on our streets um uh, you know these these are future concerns but they're present concerns Mm. because they're happening now uh so if these technologies are allowed to continue and to be rolled out um then i would say i would argue that we will no longer be a free society we will be a, a significantly controlled, monitored, watched, quantified, tracked society. And it will not only limit our freedom in the physical sense uh, and in the way that we engage with the state, but internally Mm. in each of us, what it means to be a human, what it feels like to be free will be damaged if Mm. we don't protect privacy today. 
um, then we, we won't have that aspect of our humanity for future generations. And it's a hard um, aspect. Well, it's an aspect that I think has been a hard one that we forget that people have lost their lives for and mm. bled for and fought for just so that we could have the privilege of, you know, not having to think about it even. Um, it mm. kind of reminds me of, of um, the Panopticon, which was this idea that was conceived by a British chap called Jeremy Bantham. And the idea is that you have a physical structure in which you have a surveillance tower, a watchtower in the centre of this structure. And the tower is so high and it overlooks a um, circular structure of cells so they can overlook any cell. But it's so high that you can't actually see from the cells whether a guard is there or not. And so it creates mm. a sense of inner self-surveillance. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're walking into but I don't want to be too doom and gloom before we wrap up um, I want to ask you two more questions the first of which is what is your greatest hope for the future oh I don't I don't often get to think about hopes I'm always <laughs> thinking about the risks and the worries got to have hope. Um, got to have hope haven't we um, I really hope that um, the action that we're seeing being taken now um, is representative of some kind of tension point and a teething issue that society had getting to grips with new technologies. I, I hope that we can look back in uh, 10, 15 years and say, gosh, do you remember when all of those technologies were rolled out and we had to spend five years taking the government to court? And now we live in, yes, a technologically advanced, but a, a freer, happier um, more creative society. I really, really hope uh, that that's the case. But we need, um, you know, really, we we can only do that with with public support, and that's how we did our um, our current legal challenge. So fingers crossed. I really, really hope with you that that's what we're walking into. So if you could give people one action that they can take today, right now that we can take to fight for this future, what would it be? That's really difficult. One thing. Um, well, you can have you know, a few. <laughs> uh, yeah, a whole list, <laughs> um, a prescription of things. Well, I would say, actually, if there, were, if there were just one thing, it might be just to download the Signal app on your phone um, because it's a great app that allows – it's totally free um, and free as in free of, of cost and it's free software. Um, it – enables people to send messages to each other without being spied on more so than WhatsApp. Uh, Signal doesn't collect metadata as well. So it doesn't collect logs of how often you talk to your family, partner, friends, whatever. Um, it's the most private piece of daily usable software that's out there. And I think it's by, you know, taking action um, and starting to reclaim privacy in our everyday life that we that we can cling on to the importance of, of privacy. So that would be probably my most important thing. But I think, you know, there are other things. Um, we train people in how and why to use uh, signal, email encryption, a whole range of um, privacy technologies at our monthly crypto parties Brilliant. in London. <laughs> um, and of course, I would say follow Big Brother Watch's work and support us because, yeah, we're, we're cheerleaders for, for privacy in the digital age. Um, and we can we really rely on public support to, to do our important work. And actually, I've been supporting you guys for quite a while, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. If you Thank are you. listening <laughs> and you want to follow Big Brother Watch, um, I'm going to put, of course, all of the links 
um, to their resources and social media channels on the show notes. But you can follow uh, Big Brother Watch at BBW1984 on Twitter. The website is bigbrotherwatch.org.uk. You can also check out um, the handbook that Silky wrote if you are a journalist on information security for journalists. And of course, you can follow Silky at Silky Carlo on Twitter. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Um, Silky, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, I've really appreciated thank it. Thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful. And to, thanks to uh, your listeners as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can find resources and links on the show notes page at natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes and join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.